I'd like to read from the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Thank you for standing. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. O God, our Father, may the meditations of our heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I want to say just a special greeting to you from all of my folk out in the hinterlands of the West in Moscow, Idaho. Um, I am very glad to be here. I've said to many people already, I teach not only at my, my church, of course, but at New St. Andrews College where I've had the privilege of teaching many people from your congregation, young men and women. And it is always a delight to go and see where they are from. And so it's been a real pleasure to be here, to be able to see your church, to meet you, uh, and to just experience um, the, the opportunity to be here in east part of Texas. I love seeing where people are from. So it's a great pleasure. Thank you for welcoming me and for allowing me to be here. I'd like to begin with a familiar quote from C.S. Lewis, taken from his wonderful sermon, The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I want you to think for a moment about the greatest pleasures in your life. Think back over the moments that your heart has welled up with delight and with joy, perhaps to the point where you thought you just couldn't take anymore. Undoubtedly, your mind, are, your mind is full of treasured moments, both big and small. Perhaps the birth of your children, your wedding day, or your wedding night. Lazy afternoons of eating and talking with loved ones, worshiping with the saints in the beauty and the glory of the Lord's habitation. Perhaps it's the thrill of music. The unbearable tension and resolution 
of a Bach fugue. Steak with caramelized onions and blue cheese. Or the embrace of your children when you come home from work at night. Perhaps it's a job well done, standing back and surveying your work as the Lord surveyed his and said, it's very good. Perhaps it's conquering an illness, graduating from college, quiet evenings with your wife when the children are safely in bed, seeing the Lord answer your prayers in unexpected ways, or hearing your father and your mother say to you, son, I love you, and I am so proud of you. Over the years as a father and a teacher and a pastor, I have become convinced that Lewis's insight here is central to our understanding of the Christian faith. It is central because Lewis is not simply making a true observation about us, but more importantly, he is telling us something deeply true about God himself. If we are too easily pleased with thin and shallow pleasures, we haven't begun to understand our Father. He is the source of the best and the most satisfying pleasure imaginable. What's more, Lewis is telling us that God loves being pleased. And he wants to share that pleasure with us. Pleasure isn't something peripheral to being made in God's image. It's central. But the critics of Christianity have often perceived a different emphasis in our faith. And I think of someone like that old reprobate Mark Twain. They often think that Christians are against pleasure and, moreover, hard to please themselves. If you're thinking about Mark Twain's works, which I love... Mark, uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, think for a moment of Aunt Polly. Aunt Polly is Mark Twain's image of what a Christian really is like. Aunt Polly is fussy, pedantic, sentimental by turns, indulgent, tight-shoed. Likewise, church, you remember in Tom Sawyer, the famous depiction of church, Tom goes to church, and one of the things that you see about being in church is you never hear the minister except as a droning voice in the background. Church is stale and uninteresting and boring. Beatles are more interesting than church. Tom, you can't imagine Worshipping God, because Tom is a boy, and Tom loves the world. Tom loves dead cats, and adventures, and digging in the earth, and all sorts of boyhood mischief. Aunt Polly 
can never enter that world. And therefore, Tom can never enter her world. That's the way Mark Twain thinks of what Christianity does to the human life. It makes it petty and resentful and unable to actually embrace the glories of the world. Think about Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism, first question and answer. What is the chief end of man? Of course, we respond by saying, it is to glorify God and to enjoy him. And what I've discovered as a pastor ministering to young men and women often is that they have a very difficult time understanding how those two things go together. Glorifying God and enjoying him. Pick one. And this is because, as I said before, we don't really understand the glory of our Father. Often, I think Christians think about the Lord and the way we speak about him as if he were some sort of cosmic black hole sucking the glory out of his creation. Certain kinds of Puritan worm theology that the reform faith has often imbibed in has made it think that we have nothing to offer the Lord. I can't even lift my eyes up because I'm a worm and I have nothing to offer the Lord. He is all glorious. I have nothing. But that's not the picture of God we get in Scripture. God is like an overflowing fountain. It is true that in and of ourselves we have nothing to offer the Lord. But that's only to say that we have nothing that's of ourselves. All that we have, as we just confessed, comes from him. God loves to bestow glory so that we have something to give back to him. He is all-glorious and he loves to share his glory. That's why he made the world. So that he could delight in it. And bestow his pleasure on the works of his hands. It's all from him. There is not a single iota, a tiny atom in this universe that is not the gift of God. And that does not bear his glory. But God is an overflowing fountain. Not a black hole. Listen to how Michael Reeves describes this. This is precisely what it means for God to be the Father. For when John writes, God is love, in 1 John 4, 8, he is clearly referring to the Father. His next words in verse 9 state, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son. The God who is love is the Father, who sends his Son. To be the Father, then, means to give love, to love and to give out life, To beget the Son. Before anything else, from all eternity, this God was loving and giving light, life to, and delighting in his Son. This is why the Nicene theology of the Son, 
not being created by the Father, but being eternally begotten of the Father is so important. Because it says that God loves His Son from all eternity. He is love. He is not one who creates and then has something to love. If the Son is the creation of the Father, then, the Son, then there was a time when the Father was not a Father and He did not have a Son to love. But God is love. That's what Nicene Creed affirms. He has eternally loved His Son. He is the God who loves always, always giving life to and delighting in his Son. And our text from from Mark, chapter 1, is a perfect example of this. It's the scene of Jesus' baptism, which is one of the most important passages to Trinitarian theology. This is the moment when Jesus begins his ministry. What does the Father say as he sends his Son out to accomplish the work for which he is sent? He says, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Beloved is from the word agapetos, meaning beloved, esteemed, dear, favorite, and worthy of love. Well-pleased is from the Greek word eudakeo, which means is in one's good pleasure, to be well-pleased with, to take pleasure in, to be favorably inclined towards. This is the way the Father views the Son. And it's why he sends the Son into the world that we might know him and see him as the beloved of the Father. This sheds, I think, some very interesting light on the end of Psalm 16. The psalmist writes, Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is at the right hand of the Father? The Son. So in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy as the Father delights in the Son and the Son and the Father in the fellowship of the Spirit. And at the right hand of the Lord is pleasure. And he is the Son who reveals his Father's delight. And this is the point, I believe, of Jesus' ministry. Jesus comes to share this pleasure, the pleasure that he has known in his Father's love from all of eternity. He comes to share that pleasure with us who are made in his image. Think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. This is one of my favorite verses. Beloved, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God, and so we are. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I've often told my congregation the reason I call them beloved is not just because I love them, though I do. It's because God loves them. He calls them his beloved. And as I stand in his place as a minister of the gospel, I want them to hear constantly that they are the beloved of God. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves is born of God. Because we are the beloved, we therefore love one another. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. You know one of the things that I like to think about when I think about lavish? This kind of love is not parsed out and small droppers full. There's no parsimoniousness with God. It's lavished. Think of a beautiful slice of salted French bread that's just been toasted. And a good butter. Not the butter you buy at the store. The kind that's like 85% butter fat. You put the toaster toast in the, in the toaster and it comes out beautifully. And then you take your wrist and you take that butter and you lavishly apply it. Getting it to all the corners. Making sure it's nice and thick so that when it melts, it soaks in nice. And then if you're really going for glory, you get out the lemon curd. And also lavishly apply. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then when you take the bite, it oozes through your teeth. I want you to remember that image when it says that God lavishes his love upon you. See what kind of love the Father has lavished. Even that kind of butter and lemon curd and beautiful bread is just a faint echo of what the Father has given. But he's given it in such a way that we might understand, and that gets us part of the way there. If we need more convincing, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 should knock us over. Listen to what Jesus says. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Wrap your heart around that. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To see my glory, the glory that you have given to me and that I have given to them. Our imagination staggers at trying to comprehend this. But this is what Jesus prayed for. 
The Father and the Son's glory, love, and communion is all ours because that's what Jesus comes to give. How do we know that this is the case? As the Father declares his love and his pleasure for his Son, in Mark, the Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus. And this shows us something important. That the father expresses his pleasure and his love. The moment he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, the spirit alights on Jesus. The spirit then is an expression of God's pleasure and his love. And this isn't only true of Jesus. He tells his disciples in John 16, 35, When the Spirit of truth comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit comes to glorify the Son by taking all that is his and declaring it or giving it. To us. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, He, that is the Spirit, will take what is mine and He will declare it to you. What the Father has given to me, I give to you through the Spirit who is given. And this is why, as Michael Reeve notes, the Spirit is the bringer not only of love, but of joy that is regularly associated with the joy next to which the merriness of wine is no substitute. It is all deeply personal. The Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son, and the delight of the Son in the Father inflaming their love, and so binding them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And this is why we love to share delight. We don't, whenever you're really delighted, you automatically begin looking around for someone to share it with. I've seen this with my own children. When they go into the backyard and they start looking for things of glory like bugs under rocks, kid will turn over a rock and find a pill bug colony. And you know the first thing that happens, their eyes get really big and they're excited. And the second thing they do is to look over their shoulder and say, hey, come here. Come see what I found. They want to share it. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We love to share our pleasure with others, our delight with others. Now, as I close, I want to focus on how this hits home in our lives. What does this mean for us as those who are the beloved of God? Here's how. To be a Christian means that you know this God is your father. And that you are redeemed by the son so that you can be his brother. And you have received the gift of the Spirit so you can know, experience, and grow in the fullness of their pleasure. Because of this this Trinitarian work, what the Father said of his Son, he now says 
to you. That's the upshot of Jesus' whole ministry that we've just seen in the high priestly prayer and beyond. It's so that what the Father says of the Son at his baptism may be said over us at every one of our baptisms. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If you are not pleased, it's because you haven't gotten a hold of the Father's pleasure in you yet. If you are hard to please, if you are not pleased, it's because you don't know the pleasure of your Father. The source of our pleasure, like every child's, is the delight and the joy of our fathers. And this is why Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that we would understand, and I quote, the greatness of his inheritance in the saints. Whenever Paul prays, he doesn't pray for the material needs of his congregation. He never does that. Whenever Paul prays in Scripture, he is praying that our hearts might be opened and understand and be able to receive something more glorious than we have the capacity to bear. In Ephesians, this is what he's praying for, that we would come to understand the greatness of God's inheritance in the saints. It's not the greatness of our inheritance in God. You might think that's what he's praying about. Because certainly we have a great inheritance in him. But he's praying that we might understand how God values us as his people. We are his inheritance. That's hard to understand. But Paul wants us to understand that that's what Jesus comes to do. So that we might be his inheritance. In our marriages and families and friendships, we very often get this backward. We make our delight dependent on the performance of the people around us. In other words, our delight is a response rather than a cause. It comes second, not first. I see this often in parenting and marriage counseling. When people are sitting in front of me and they're having difficulties, I hear this a lot. I would be able to respect him and honor him as my husband if he would just do fill in the blank. I would be able to love her if she would only fill in the blank. Or I wouldn't be so impatient with the children. I'd like them a lot more. I'd speak more kindly to them if they would just do X. Fill in the blank. If you think like that, you don't understand what it means to be a child of the Father. If you are trying to earn the Father's pleasure, here's the thing. People are going to have to earn your pleasure. If you're trying to earn your Father's pleasure, then that means in your home, your children are going to have to earn yours. But in the Bible, and I want you to understand this, delight is the cause of everything. From creation to our justification to our sanctification to our final glorification, pleasure comes first. God delights in us 
and loves us when we were unlovely, when we were sinners. And it's his commitment to save and his pleasure and his delight that is realized in all that Jesus does. His pleasure and delight is the cause of everything. And I think that's why, honestly, when the son in the prodigal son parable returns home and recites his speech, the father doesn't even address him. He turns to the son, to the, to the, to the servant, and tells him to go prepare everything. When he sees the son limping down the road in tatters, the father runs to him. His love is already there before the son has even a, a word, gets a word out of his mouth. It's the father's pleasure that prepares the feast. My son was lost, but now he's found. It is fitting that we celebrate. Beloved, this is the truth of it. The father's delight produces obedience in his children. And it is his love that makes us holy. Even the, his discipline is a product of his pleasure. Romans says it's the kindness, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. His goodness goes first and it leads us to repent. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness, Hebrews says. This is the engine that makes the Christian life roar. It's the heart of the festivity that we've been talking about all this weekend. Satan wants us only to use two cylinders as if we've been given an eight-cylinder engine and we're only going to run on two cylinders and forget about the other six. And I think this is the answer to Nietzsche and Twain. It's what Lewis meant by the weight of glory. Lewis wrote... The promise of glory is this promise, is the promise, almost incredible and only possible because of the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive the examination of standing before God, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in it as an artist delights in his work or as a father in his son. It seems impossible. A weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And thanks be to God that it is so. When you know this kind of pleasure, the pleasure of the Father expressed through the Son and the giving of the Spirit, it changes everything about you. Suddenly you are set free to live and to love and delight because you are invited to share the love, the life, and the delight of your Father. Beloved, this is what it means to be a Christian. 
It's your inheritance. And it's the glory, the unbearable glory of being his beloved. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this great gift of glory that you have bestowed upon us, your people, lavished upon us. We acknowledge that our hearts are not able to comprehend its greatness, but we thank you for it. And we thank you that we will have all eternity in your presence to learn of it, to delight in it, and to rejoice in being loved by you, the God and Father of all. Father, would you teach us to be a people who are easily pleased? Teach us how to love our husbands and our wives and our children and indeed one another with the love that you have given us. For we ask all of this in the name of your beloved Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me. As we come to the Lord's table... I want you to think about this. In the early church, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was known among the Roman world as a love feast. It was often thought of, in fact, scandalously, because it was a love feast in which brothers and sisters, they thought maybe this was a feast of incest, the strange feast in which love was being celebrated amongst brothers and sisters. Romans didn't really understand what the Lord's Supper was about, but they got it right. It was a love feast. And it's rightfully the culmination of every Lord's Day worship because it's the feast in which our Father invites to sit down with Him at His table and to eat of the heavenly bread and drink that He has provided in His Son. As you come to the Lord's table this morning, remember that the head of this table is our Lord Jesus Christ and that the Father has said of him, this is my beloved Son of whom I am well pleased. And Jesus told us that he came to give us everything that the Father gave to him. And so this table is your table. It's a table for sons, for the beloved of God. It is a sign and a seal that you belong to him, that he is delighted with you. He looks forward to this moment every week, and you should too. It's a place where you should be, your heart should be lifted up and glad. Because here you eat and drink and taste and see how gracious the Lord is. So as you come to the table... This morning, as I say to my congregation every Sunday, these are the gifts of God, and they are for you, the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving.
Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the great blessing of gathering as your people in your house. We are so thankful that you have invited us from the nations, called us to yourself, and that in your Son and the gift of the Spirit, you have provided everything necessary for our salvation, and that you have bestowed upon us, indeed lavished upon us, your great love. Thank you for these great gifts. Teach us, O Lord, to love as we have been loved. And take, teach us to enter the fullness of your pleasure, your delight in your people. Thank you for so great a salvation and the gift of these things. And now send us out into the world that we might share this love, this pleasure, and this glory with the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.